0: from circadence.
1: In the months following the announcement of the RPS transfer, the Science Museum Group and the V&A disclosed a raft of confidential documents in response to freedom of information requests from the public. These documents mostly contain consultation memos and trustee board minutes. Taken together, they revealed the internal negotiations and motivations that culminated in the transfer of the collection from Bradford, I won't go into too much detail about these documents as most of the questions they raise have already been answered in the previous episode. But for clarity it's worth saying a few things. First, the documents show that the transfer was originally proposed two years ago, in March 2015, in a memo that was circulated among the SMG board by Joe Quinton Tullock, the director of the Bradford Museum. Her memo recommended keeping the RPS collection within SMG, but relocating it to a proposed research center at the Science Museum in South Kensington. This research center, according to the memo, would be created to house the artistic and cultural components of SMG's overall photography collection. In the event, later documents dating from July and December of 2015 show that such a research centre was deemed too costly by SMG, particularly in a sustained period of austerity. Instead, the decision was taken to, quote, deaccession the artistic and cultural photography element of the National Media Museum collection and transfer it to the v unquote. The second thing to say is that, sifting through these documents, it becomes clear that public access to the RPS collection figured significantly in the internal discussions leading up to the transfer. An SMG memo from July 2015 notes that 259 people visited the Bradford Museum that year specifically to access the RPS collection. The memo claims this figure could be improved at the VNA study rooms. Likewise, a recommendation for transfer submitted to the SMG board in December 2015 lists potential improvements to access and cataloging as key factors in the decision-making process that singled out the VNA for stewardship of the collection. This line of reasoning, let's call it the access argument, would go on to be publicly expressed by Mary Archer, the chair of the SMG board. She responded to public criticism of the transfer last March in an article featured in The Guardian. Here's what she said, quote, The collection is great, but in the past decade or so we have not been able to do it justice. We could have opted for a quiet life, but instead dared to ask, is there a better home for this collection? We looked for somewhere with significant resources, expertise and reach, both nationally and internationally the V&A has fantastic plans to create an international photography centre. The collection will be digitised and accessible in the museum's study rooms, which were visited by 35,000 people last year, and will join their programme of national tours. As we heard in the last episode, the decision to relocate the RPS collection was born out of funding pressures and strategic downsizes. But in the end, does any of that really matter if access to the RPS collection is improved? How will the VA use the collection, and will this ultimately vindicate the transfer? From Cicadence, I'm Colin Barton. This is Drawn by Light.
2: to improve access to the collection is through making it accessible in two ways one is both it is physically and the other is virtually digitally In terms of time scale it is already available at the VNA
1: That's Martin Barnes Martin is the VNA's senior curator of photographs and in this role he's overseen both the physical transfer of the RPS collection and its assimilation into the VNA's archives. I spoke with Martin at the end of March this year, by which time the transfer was almost complete. Martin explained that the VNA's acquisition was motivated by long-term plans to establish a center of excellence for photography at the VNA. We'll get into this shortly, but for now, let's focus on immediate developments to the RPS collection itself,
2: to so the physical Access to the collection. Um, we hope we've improved it by moving it into a facility next to our print storage study room. Um, we've just um, spent six months reconstructing one of our stores to improve its climate control and its um, racking and storage facilities for all the different types of material in the. Collections For the first time, also, all the boxes have been numbered sequentially. We now have a, a box listing at, at, a basic box level of what's in all of those boxes. so it's searchable um, that material will be is literally right uh, on the same level as the, as the study room.
1: Martin told me that in this on-site study room, the collection is already being used by visiting researchers. So I asked him if he expected a jump in private appointments to visit the collection, at least beyond Bradford's annual tally of 259.
2: Well, we know that the, the Prince and drawing study room at the V&A um, regularly gets around 2,000 visitors a year. Um, so with the RPS collections being available in the prints and drawing study room, we expect that figure to, to rise quite significantly terms of numbers of people who use the study rooms in, at the V&A compared to those who used the study rooms in Bradford, the number is bigger. Um, so I'd, I'd expect that there would be more access, more visits to use the collections at the, in the study room at the V&A.
1: So while Martin couldn't give me an exact forecast, an uptick in physical visits to the collection does seem likely.
2: They're very, very accessible in the study room, which is open free to the public four days a week. Uh, It's free of charge and anybody can make an appointment to see it and um, in in line with all of the other um, access arrangements to the prints and Drawing study room, um, you don't need a reader's ticket, um, you don't need a letter of instruction Um, and in that regard I think in terms of access uh, to photographs in study rooms around the world, the V&A study room is one of the most accessible, in fact probably the most accessible um, in the world.
1: So it's pretty clear that physical access to the collection is getting better at the V&A. But what about digital access? The long-term ambition is to get
2: a, an image and a basic catalogue record up online. That's a you know, that's a significant and major uh, job to carry out um, because when the collections arrived at the V&A, roughly about 2% of it had been digitised in terms of images um, and in terms of digital catalogue records.
1: Martin explained that his team has completed listing all the boxes in the collection and that work has now started on individual item-by-item cataloguing.
2: The same system that we use behind the scenes for cataloguing gets loaded up on the website the following day Uh, so you'll be able to search for them on the museums, search the collections database which is online so you'll see some very um, significant rapid advances on being able to search the collections. The collection is, is huge and a lot of it um, has not been digitised before. Well, most of it has not been digitised and available publicly before. Um, so we, we're working on which parts of the collection to begin digitization with. So yes, there's enormous tasks, but we've got resources to do that. Yeah.
1: Martin and his team do have substantial resources with which to develop and enhance the collection. And looking a bit further forward, these resources will also be used to establish a new international photography centre at the v I asked Martin how the RPS collection figures in all of this.
2: Well, the RPS collections will be dead centre within the new plans for the photography um, centre. They, you know, they've acted as a, a catalyst for accelerating the development of the idea of a centre. And they, they fundamentally shift the way we think about how we approach photography at the pna because until now we've had a photograph gallery and what this will be is a photography center it it, it will be in essence an international center in its in its scope and ambition and its visitors um, and it will be a resource center for photography in that it will have books and journals and letters and prints and negatives and cameras and so forth as part of its um,
1: function. Martin told me that the centre will be launched in two phases over the next five years. In autumn 2018, the permanent gallery space for photography at the museum will more than double and then in 2022 that footprint will double again. So Martin and his team will oversee a quadrupling of the current photography footprint at the museum.
2: It will include all of the kinds of the range of material which both the vna existing vna photograph collection and the rps collection combined which by putting them together will um in you know enliven and enrich those two collections very significantly and will extend beyond um and simply art photography we're moving now to a much more a much wider approach about the culture of photography in, in, in its broader sense. You know, the, embracing the broader culture of what photography is in the way that the, the V&A tackles all sorts of subjects that we exhibit and show in the museum, which in, you know includes how things are made, how things are understood socially, how things are designed, how things are consumed,
1: so by embracing what Martin calls the broader culture of photography, the VNA will be implementing a holistic approach to the medium, similar to that which Colin Ford originally brought to bear at the Bradford Museum. And as Martin says, the RPS collection will be an active part of these plans.
2: The way we're thinking of figuring the RPS collections within
1: the Photography center is very much about integrating them with what we already have
2: at the VNA. I think the idea is very much that the r p s collection is not held separately um in the v a or exhibited separately, although its provenance and its identification as the r p s collection will remain intact, it will be integrated in the displays in the centre with the v and a collections because um part of the benefits of bringing the two collections together is the dialogues that they might have.
1: We'll come back to Martin later to find out more about the funding behind the Photography Centre. But for now, a question. So we've heard that, where the RPS collection is concerned, physical access at the point of its use is improving in South Kensington. But does physical access at the point of use necessarily improve access for everyone across the country? This is a question that interests me because it's not as straightforward as it seems and it actually throws up a lot of uncertainty. Bear with me for a second while I try to explain. So the first thing to say is that the RPS transfer did not happen in a vacuum. The transfer is part of a wider, centralizing trend in publicly funded culture. By that I mean that the public resources, funding channels, expertise, and assets that support the wider cultural infrastructure of England are heavily trained on distinct pockets of inner London. We'll go on to explore this in detail, but here's a quick example. So there are 13 designated national museums, all established by Act of Parliament and funded directly by government as non-departmental agencies. Only two of these National Museums are headquartered outside of London. Only five operate satellite sites outside of London. And nearly two-thirds operate solely within the capital. Now, London has always been dominant in this sense. As the capital and as an international city, this is natural. But contrast London's fortunes with the rest of the nation. According to the Museums Association, 43 regional museums in England have closed since 2010 due to government cutbacks, and regional museums, due to their often non-statutory local authority nature, have been adversely impacted by austerity cuts. Access to surviving regional museums has been hampered as a result, with reduced opening hours and the introduction of entry charges documented across the board. Anyway, the point is that there's what we could call a museum imbalance in England. In central London, the rough triangle that encapsulates Museum Mile, the South Kensington Museums and the two Tate sites outranks anything else in the country. And for a majority of the population, this geographically narrow concentration of museums actually impedes civic access to national collections. This very point was observed in an independent report published in 2013 by a group of arts policy specialists. Titled Rebalancing Our Cultural Capital, the report uncovers the extent to which national funding subsidizes cultural life in London ahead of the rest of England. So it found, for instance, that in 2013, Taxpayers from the whole of England provided cultural funding to London of £69 per head of population against £4.60 per head in the rest of the country. That's a ratio of 15 to 1. And the report also has this to say about the london bias distribution of national cultural assets. Quote, the cost of accessing the capital's cultural assets is substantial and geographically determined over two-thirds of the population of England incurs a heavy travel and accommodation premium to enjoy the same access to the same experiences in the capital as Londoners and their close neighbors. The scale of these premiums renders access unaffordable for a very high proportion of England's more distant populations, unquote. The report then goes on to illustrate this point with a costed projection. The projection finds the following, quote, The cost for a family of four from the Leeds area to spend two full days in the capital's museums and galleries at South Kensington is around £600 more than the costs borne by a similar family within day-trip reach of the capital, and £750 more than one located in London. There's a link to the report in the show notes if you want to read this breakdown in full. In light of the RPS transfer, it makes for an interesting read. So anyway, in essence, rebalancing our cultural capital shows that public access to cultural assets is costly when those assets are so centralized. Improved physical access at the point of use is no guarantor of more democratic access nationally. Last summer, I met up with one of the report's co-authors to hear his views on the RPS transfer. David Powell is an independent researcher and policy consultant.
3: It's understandable why the V&A centrally funded, well-resourced, lots of spare archive shelves and a desire to pull things back in and do them well might advance the argument that the collection should move and it's completely understandable that the Media Museum might say actually we're you know we're really in difficulty here and we can't do our best by them but to let that happen as opposed to work out What it is we should be doing to put, you know, the proper balance in place is, you know, we're really culpable.
1: When we spoke, I put the argument to David that ongoing improvements in digital access to the RPS collection might nullify concerns about its relocation to South Kensington. David made the point that digital access works both ways, that what can be accessed digitally from Bradford, say, can also be accessed from London. With this in mind, David said, we must then consider where the RPS collection would add the greatest value. We're
3: having a discussion here about photographs, a museum, if you like, and two communities, uh, in in tension about a decision, but actually, you know, fundamentally this this is also, you know, the argument about the northern powerhouse or about why, you know, there needs to be a better equitable relationship with Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Culture is it's part part of the much bigger discussion and actually one of the difficulties that we've got with our cultural leaders and our political leaders is they don't elevate it into that discussion. They keep it kind of separate. These aren't curators' exhibits. These are all of our treasures. And if I live in Yorkshire or Lancashire or Devon or the flat fens of Norfolk, you know, why, why should I have to go to London to, to see everything? It makes no sense at any level. Of course, the, the institution will say we have to hold stuff. Efficiency drives everything to the middle. Uh, but that's not a good enough answer.
1: I asked David why he thinks this idea has gained so much traction. This idea that efficiency should drive everything to the centre.
3: I think there's something about the centralising nature of, of British government. I think local financial poverty, uh, but I think it's also it's also about the nature of big cultural institutions that see themselves as their own experts, their own their own points of reference in all of these discussions.
1: Prior to meeting up with David last summer, I'd conducted a separate interview with a different David, Dr. Dave O'Brien of the University of Edinburgh. Dave is a leading academic in the field of cultural policy. His research is wide-ranging and covers areas like public administration and urban policy. At the time, I wanted to get a better understanding of how the precise coordinates of the RPS transfer squared with the bigger political picture. So I asked Dave if he could expand upon the link between culture and centralising governance.
4: So there are lots of things to say about um, the unequal geography of uh, the United Kingdom's cultural provision. Some of this uh, has changed because of devolution. So Wales and Scotland have got their own um, cultural systems um, with their own arts councils and obviously their own national administrations now in England there is a heavy skew towards London some people justify this on the grounds that there are a lot of cultural institutions in London and much of the kind of infrastructure for cultural production um, whether in theatre or film and tv um, or other art forms is in London such as the visual arts market and some some things like this but that does reflect a a much longer term um, trend towards focusing um, on London and focusing on the, uh, the commitment to major national institutions, most of whom are housed in London. Partially this goes back to what I was saying earlier about Britain, whether we see this as the UK or whether we see it as England, is a highly centralised state with power and control really focused on London, thus we shouldn't be surprised that um, funding, um, whether for transport infrastructure or cultural infrastructure, um, is focused on London.
1: Here's an idea of just how centralised we've become. According to accounts published by the OECD, for every pound raised in tax, 91 pence is controlled by central government. This measure of central control over tax revenue is greater than in any other industrialised nation.
4: There has been a very long tradition, certainly going back as far as the mid 1970s in the UK, um, that really accelerated in the 1980s and ironically accelerated further even as the Labour administration in the 90s was trying to regionalise of centralised control in the UK. The UK is, certainly in Europe, a kind of uniquely centralised state. So even things like devolution to um, Scotland and Wales has seen much more centralisation, particularly around the Ministry of Finance, the Treasury's Mm -hmm. control of things like departmental budgets and stuff like this. And the very strict control of local authority budgets since 2010 has further accelerated this.
1: The spending power of local authorities in England has actually been cut by 27% since 2010. And touching upon something I mentioned earlier, this badly affects cultural services at the local level. Unlike social care, for instance, local authorities aren't bound by statute to maintain libraries, theatres and the like. As a result, local authority investment in culture has declined by 17% since 2010. Among other things, this has led to the closure of 343 libraries across the country. Whilst local government collectively provides the most cultural funding in the UK, it has also had to bear the brunt of public spending cuts.
4: As budgets get cut, A specific cultural uh, policy issue is around um, what is it easier to cut and how and obviously the larger London based organisations which are much more kind of visible in a variety of sort of media networks, um, cultural networks, in some cases are much more personally close to um, ministers and decision makers and things like this. It's difficult to kind of say you can't have any money, but smaller institutions in the regions, which are unlikely to generate as much press or as much, um, you know, kind of uh, public protest, um, can carry on being funded. So it's an intersection of lots of different things that have meant that, um, to an extent, we are a more um, kind of culturally centralised um, nation in England centered on London.
1: We'll come back to Dave later, but I just want to dwell on this point for a moment. Now it's pretty obvious that the V&A falls into the privileged category that Dave mentions. It's a large London-based museum with an influential public profile. Since 2013, its accrued government grant and aid has come to just under 156 million pounds. For comparison, in the same period of time, the four SMG museums, three of which are based in the North, secured only four million pounds more between them. The v also has commercial nows and a fair whack of social prestige, and it's able to harness these assets in the pursuit of private revenue streams. To illustrate what I mean, here are some figures. In 2016, the VNA's combined private sponsorship and donations revenue came to about 19 million pounds. SMG, on the other hand, raised just over 10 million. And the year before, in 2015, the VNA accrued a sponsorship and donations pot totalling twenty five million pounds. SMG collectively managed only six million in that same period. These discrepancies are stark, and they also have some real bearing on the RPS transfer. Why? Because the VNA will supplement the cost of its new photography center with sponsorship and donations revenue. Here's Martin Barnes from the VA again.
2: It's estimated at around about seven million pounds. So the entire project, the various funding channels which make it operational are a mixture of fundraising from individuals and corporations and the, you know, the corporate world and you know, wealthy and helpful benefactors and then the existing operational cost of the museum which the
1: government funded. Just to be clear here, the cost of the RPS transfer itself was absorbed into the VNA's existing operational budget, which is publicly funded. This covered the costs of storage, cataloguing and the like, but the establishment of the Photography Centre will be largely financed with private money.
2: It's already part of the v fundraising campaign from our development office, um, and it will be pieced together from a mixture of foundations and private individuals and um, I, I suppose technology manufacturers will be approaching. So... Um, we're looking at a system of naming uh, galleries uh, within the suite of galleries for the whole centre and and that's how we will um, fund the the whole thing. I suppose I can also tell you we've also just received our first um, million pounds towards it so that's a very good start but I can't say from whom just yet.
1: We heard earlier about the sizeable resources earmarked for the photography centre and we now know that this is largely thanks to the goodwill of private sponsors. On the one hand this is great, but there's another more problematic flip side to all this. Michael Turwey is Head of Collections and Exhibitions at the Bradford Museum, and he touched upon this during one of our discussions.
5: It's very challenging when, um, you know, in the RPS Collections move, it is so obvious how the v and is able to raise money for things in London because it's in London, from um, individuals and people, um, which is Beyond the possibility of us raising those funds within Bradford, um, so th- th- I mean I, I I understand the argument and I you know I quite possibly have made this argument in the past that actually there needs to be a redistribution of that funding so that um, the locations where it's possible to raise funds more easily support places where it's not so easy to raise funds in in, in that kind of way.
1: There's a really striking figure that underpins this argument. In 2012, a year before the near closure of the Bradford Museum, over 80% of all private sector support for the arts went to London-based organisations. This includes funds from trusts, foundations, businesses and, of course, individual donors.
5: It's incredibly difficult, particularly when you're dealing with individual donors who, um, for whom the prestige of something in London is... You know, Part of the reason why they're giving several million pounds to, to, to the VA. The prestige of the VA is part of the reason why they're, they're giving that money, part of the psychology of kind of donors. And I don't think our kind of ethics and our culture of the way that we work in the cultural sector has quite reached the point where we um, recognise how to work within that. It's very challenging for Bradford because Bradford's economy is not in great shape, um, but there have been instances relatively recently of corporate donors funding, for example, the Bradford Literature Festival. Um, And the Arts Council actually supported the Bradford Literature Festival over a number of years to help them to get to the position where they can, and they have the capacity for bringing in money from elsewhere. So it's a kind of relationship of public and private money that kind of comes together in those ways.
1: Putting private sponsorship to one side, the most pressing challenge faced by the Bradford Museum in recent years has been, to put it simply, survival. As Michael explained in the last episode, SMG has addressed this challenge by downsizing the museum's activities and removing the RPS collection from Bradford. And we heard how all this led back to funding cuts. We heard how the centralising pull of austerity would draw a national collection from West Yorkshire to the capital. I asked Michael how he felt about this.
5: If there is a problem in this country between sort of London and the rest of the country in terms of um, cultural distribution of resources, it's not within our gift to be able to to sort that out. That's a set of political challenges and economic and social challenges which um we as a democracy, all of us, need to kind of participate in the discussion about how that happens. But it's an incredibly challenging area and it's important that we talk about um how those distribution of cultural resources kind of happen. Um, not least because, you know, London is the capital of our country. So um traditionally national museums, national collections, things of national status are located in the capital. Um, if we were to think about how that was devolved more widely around the country, you would think about a lot of other things in, in that kind of context, but I don't think we've got to grips with this yet as a, as a sector.
1: In the last episode, I mentioned the conspicuous lack of public consultation on the RPS transfer. Discussions leading up to the move were conducted entirely in private between SMG trustees and directors. And then a final decision was made without even a cursory attempt to talk it through with the public first.
6: I don't think there was proper thought given to not the disposal of the collections, but the manner of arriving at a decision to dispose. The only thing that for me is really, really shocking is the lack of public consultation.
1: That's Francis Hodgson. Francis is Professor in the Culture of Photography at the University of Brighton.
6: It seems to me a very peculiar thing to arrive at a decision which intimately concerns the national holdings in photography, to make those decisions without um, arriving at some kind of best practice or best practice guidance from within the photographic community. It seems to me the height of arrogance for that decision affecting, I think the grand total, including all the collections, is 470,000 images. To dispose of 470,000 images from a national institution without telling anybody that you're saying so, seems to me a grave error of judgment.
1: We'll hear much more from Francis later, but on this particular point, Dave O'Brien also shared some interesting thoughts.
4: The lack of public consultation actually I think is interesting because that's something that um, I think is increasingly um, untenable for cultural organisations in the age of particularly things like social media but the more um, participative turn we're seeing in um, democracy and democratic nations more generally. It's a missed opportunity for an organisation to be able to kind of um, Take people with it in its decisions, and also for it to learn about the extent to which its view of itself is accurate. Now, public consultations cost money. Uh, there are ways of doing public consultation that are more uh, or less consultative, depending on on how you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are you know some problems with it, but it's never a bad thing for um, both a kind of a local community and those. Um, groups that are nationally interested to feel like they own a decision Mm. and have been, you know, kind of part of understanding it as well.
1: All in all, the lack of consultation perhaps shouldn't be too surprising. It reflects a broader system of quite centralised and distant governance. And this isn't just a characteristic of the Science Museum group. All national museums lack a kind of democratic accountability in that they awkwardly straddle a fine line between the public and private domain. They are funded by the public purse, but they are privately managed at a safe distance from direct government interference. And even then, accountability is filtered through the narrow interests of a small government department, the Department for Culture, Media and Sport.
4: There's a curious uh, situation in the UK where you have uh, essentially kind of private institutions under charitable or trustee control but they receive large amounts of money from the government and so have a kind of quasi-public status, which means that decisions they make on the one hand are in keeping with private institutions taking private decisions, but also are uh, open to question because they receive large amounts of of state funding and are also those institutions that kind of trade on or are heavily involved in the rhetoric of their public purpose. So the V&A, for instance, is really interesting because it's not one of those, um, I guess, kind of directly um, dependent um, Arts Council organisations. Obviously it's a National Museum, you know, it's kind of um, part of the National Museum system and it's really clearly an important national cultural institution. So yeah, it's tricky because on the one hand uh, we have these organisations that have the kind of the trappings of state institutions but they are also you know privately governed and subject to private forms uh, of governance.
1: The Science Museum Group was established in 1983 under the National Heritage Act. This act made the administration of all national museums the responsibility of independent government appointed trustees. So as we heard in the last episode, the various interests of SMG's four museums are ultimately governed by a single London-based trustee board. Here's Michael Turwey again.
5: We are a national museum. Um, our governance structures and our stakeholder management structures, which are, are part of you know, how we are set up by the National Heritage Act, are geared towards... Um, a diverse board of trustees with whom to whom we are accountable um, and being accountable to Department of Culture, Media and Sport. So it all works in in that kind of way. We are not directly, um, and this is problematic and I, you know completely problematic, we're not directly accountable to um, the location, we're not directly accountable to people in, in Bradford um, and nor are we directly accountable to the people of the United Kingdom. We are accountable to their repre- democratically elected representatives in, in government. Um, I can thoroughly accept that this causes asymmetries, um, particularly in a, in a city which returns three Labour MPs when we have a Conservative um, government in, in Westminster. So this is not a perfect system at all.
1: The asymmetries that Michael describes are most palpable at the local level. In the case of the RPS transfer, there was a perceived lack of accountability and indeed sensitivity towards the interests of Bradford, the wider Yorkshire region, and the North in general. I've listened to many people local to Bradford in making this documentary, but there are two voices I want to single out. Joe Booth is a lecturer in photography and worked for many years at the Bradford Museum. And Alan for is president of the Yorkshire Photographic Union.
7: It seems to me that there's been a one-off decision made uh, one that's that consultation uh, it's certainly not been open. It's been made by a small coterie of of people in one particular part of the country. I would have expected that they might might um, consult an organisation of of, of photographers in, in in the Yorkshire area. Um, uh, they seem to have made the decision behind closed doors, so I think consultation, even a, 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 an ephemeral consultation with a known end result hasn't happened. And there is a, a serious question I think about governance in, in the arts um, uh, as to why uh, the decision that seems to be made hasn't been more widely consulted upon, discussed. Um, reference to any form of umbrella view about, or policy view about how we should look at photography. And it, it would be interested to have a national debate about such things um, before making such piecemeal decisions that favor only parts of the country.
1: The kind of policy deficit that Alan describes was also raised by Jo. She was especially surprised that SMG had sought no guidance from the wider photography sector.
0: If you're going to make an enormous change to the way that photography is managed within the country for the nation. There's a number of different people that have got interests within that. Of course, there are museums that hold their own collections. There are also photographers whose work is represented within collections. There's educationalists groups who use the material that's in the collection. There's all the researchers. There's the independent galleries, uh, photography galleries sector, who quite often look after the early careers of the photographers whose work winds up in the the major collections. Um, And there's private, private collectors as well. So there's a number of different stakeholders. And that consultation wasn't held. There wasn't any consultation with the sector about this specific point of moving. It just didn't happen. And that is the main, that is, a, that is a really serious problem for photography and all its stakeholders because this photography is not just about the Science Museum group. This isn't just about the RPS collection. This is about the integrity and the heritage of photography as a whole within this country and our ability or our willingness to look after it.
1: Joanne Allen agreed that SMG's failure to consult, either with local or industry stakeholders, seemed to reflect a broader, centralising tendency taking hold across the country.
7: There does seem to be a move to drag things to the centre uh, in the south, uh, a general centralization, which I, I don't like, um, I think we should react against. Um, uh, there, you know, there some really good examples of successful arts venues in the north but the trend tends to be higher expenditure per head of population by a long way uh, in, in in the London area than in the regions um, and um, seemingly decisions made behind closed doors by predominantly London and South Eastern um, decision makers which I think is a real shame. I mean in retrospect uh, it's a shame that Earlier on, there wasn't an effort to um, make sure that decisions on the Bradford Media Museum had more of a local angle and that they'd be more transparent. It seems profoundly undemocratic, what is happening.
1: When I spoke to Jo, she explained how her initial frustrations were later compounded by the way in which SMG handled public criticism of the transfer. She was particularly miffed by a statement Mary Archer made in The Guardian, claiming that the RPS collection had quote unquote, scanned connections with the Yorkshire region.
0: Mary Archer's piece that was in The Guardian, I have to say, I, I disagree with profoundly, not least because if you look back at the history of the Media Museum and the original aspirations of the founders of the National Media Museum, and in particular, Colin Ford, The RPS collection was always part of the aspiration for the Media Museum. It was always something that seemed to have a sensible home here, because at that time the Media Museum was called the National Museum of Photography, Film and Television. Um, And so it was the natural home of that collection and the natural home of photography. And so it's got a fundamental relationship with Yorkshire and not only with Yorkshire, with Bradford and specifically with that museum.
1: What Joe says here was corroborated by Colin Ford when I interviewed him. He told me that acquiring the RPS collection, and as importantly, bringing that collection under public ownership, had always been part of the original plan for a National Museum of Photography in Bradford. But anyway, putting that issue to one side, it's clear that the institutional handling of the transfer hasn't really done much to build any sense of civic trust. I'll let Alan have the last word on this matter.
7: There's been no intervention made um, by senior politicians in government. It's seen as an arm's length thing. Um, and the more we learn about it, the more all the decisions were made some while ago. And it's past decision time. It's now the practicalities of how the collection should move. So I think it's it's very disheartening. And I would hope that the arts movement um, and that arts... Um, Managers in future will learn from what uh, is a mistake uh, in in decision making uh, and one that um, that, that doesn't dwell well um, uh, in a democratic society.
1: A few months ago at the end of March, the renamed National Science and Media Museum topped off a second rebrand in 10 years with the launch of a new gallery space. Dubbed by marketeers the new home of WOW, WonderLab has cost SMG £1.8 million to build. A press release from the museum states that, quote, visitors will be able to see their bodies split from their head as they walk, hear their voice echo through a 15-meter-long tube, experience an anti-gravity mirror and a musical laser tunnel, as well as watch one of the world's first 3D printed zoetrope installations. In case you hadn't guessed, WonderLab is an interactive gallery aimed predominantly at younger audiences, and it seems to symbolize the gradual change that has taken place at the museum over recent years.
6: In 2006 Bradford changed its name from the National Museum of Photography, Film and Television to the National Media Museum. At that time, lots of curators were made redundant. And it was then clear that it was moving away from being a museum anchored in the collections to being a museum anchored in something else. And that's something, I suppose we'd better call it the experiential business, the, the new museology of giving people a day to remember.
1: That's Francis Hodgson again. The change that Francis describes corresponds with the removal of the RPS collection from Bradford. The museum has ceased to be the collecting institution that it once was, and has gradually cleaved to the more experiential stuff of visitor attractions. It's difficult to assess how this shift is really faring at the museum. But it's telling that in 2003, the year that the RPS collection was brought to Bradford, the museum attracted a quarter of a million more visitors than it did last year. Perhaps the new injection of science programmes will revive the museum's fortunes. Perhaps the STEM agenda will work wonders. But if that scenario does play out, it will not have been without cost.
6: We get this insistence on the STEM subjects, which is an American import into English educational thinking. The government is very keen on STEM because there's a shortage of young engineers and so forth, particularly young women engineers and so forth, and maybe quite rightly so. But it's a very odd and very sweeping policy change to take a museum full of great, great things in both the art and science of photography to undo that at the sweep of a policymaker's pencil seems a swift decision to make to collections that go back a hundred and more years.
1: There are many problematic, frustrating, and unfortunate aspects to the RPS transfer, but for the most part they are just that, problematic, frustrating, unfortunate. There was nothing overtly underhand about the transfer itself, and Freedom of Information documents show that due process was followed by SMG in their handling of the move. But there is, however, one last niggling issue that I want to finish on. It goes back to 2003, when the Bradford Museum acquired the collection from the Royal Photographic Society and brought it under public ownership.
6: The collections were not moved to Bradford as a gift, nor were they, as is often done, moved to Bradford as it were for safekeeping, but while keeping them in the ownership of the uh, RPS on on a long loan to Bradford. They were sold, and public monies were raised for them to be sold.
1: The bulk of this public money came from lottery funding.
6: I think I'm right in saying that it's the largest Heritage Lottery Fund grant that's ever been awarded for photography and the the sum if I remember rightly was 3.75 million sterling. Um, That was supplemented, there used to be a development agency called Yorkshire Forward and Yorkshire Forward paid for some of the money, there were various sources of money but the total was something of the order of five million pounds raised to bring the Royal Photographic Society collection to Bradford.
1: Adjusting for inflation, that figure would today stand at over £7 million. And it should also be stressed that the payment made in 2003 was actually nominal. It didn't reflect the true market value of the RPS collection, which today probably stands in the tens of millions. The reason I mention all this is because no compensation, monetary or otherwise, has been sought for the museum in Bradford. It's lost one of the world's great photo archives as a direct result of financial pressure and funding cuts, and yet no effort has been made by way of an even cursory reimbursement. I've tried to ascertain why this is the case. I've been told by those directly involved in the transfer that the RPS collection is publicly owned and can't be traded around. But a trade assumes equal bartering power, and a trade is distinct from compensation. The RPS collection would not be publicly owned today had it not been for its acquisition by the Bradford Museum in 2003. Public funds were raised specifically to locate the collection in Bradford. A big chunk of that funding was levied by a regional development agency and the museum has poured so much of its time, effort and resources into restoring and developing the collection, only to have it taken away 13 years later.
6: The idea that this great collection has been purchased with this Heritage Lottery Fund money that we're talking about and is then (coughs) given away at the end of the process, relatively soon after, the present deaccessioning is being made without any asset value being demanded from the Viennay. The Viennay have simply held their hands open and one of the great collections of photography in the world has been dropped into their hands. To be honest, they could not look a gift horse in the mouth. The VNA can hardly be blamed for saying thank you very much, we'll have that. But it does seem strange to me as a completely private citizen to look at public funds being raised in the name of a museum, a collection therefore having a nominal value even uh, far in inferior to the actual value that the collection probably would have had if you'd taken it to Sotheby's or Christie's at the time. Talk about the RPS collection having an asset value of five million quid, maybe I'd be right to guess that it's probable value would be something like 30 or 40 million quid. No attempt has been made to recover those funds at all in passing it on to the other museum.
1: The lack of any compensation is a missed opportunity to redress just some of the national imbalances we've raked over in this episode. We know that the V&A has the power to raise huge sponsorship and donations revenues. In the last two years, it's raised 44 million pounds. The 7 million pound cost of its new photography center will be covered by future private sponsorship. So why did the Science Museum Group not seek any compensation for its financially hamstrung museum in Bradford? Why has the VNA offered nothing? Is it not incumbent upon national museums to exercise a degree of social responsibility through fair, just, and redistributive acquisitions policies? Where has the spirit of 2003 gone?
6: It was a major triumph of policy. To get the money together, to make a heritage lottery fund applic- application was a big process. It seemed unlikely at the time that that money would be forthcoming and it was, and the clear implication was that photography as a museum collectible was being put on the map. Now that's not all that long ago. It's very hard to see what public interest is served by that money having been raised, the collections having been moved, a certain amount of hoopla and triumphalism being announced at the time then, and then the whole thing being undone. And one of the things it makes me believe is it will be increasingly difficult as a result to get another large public funding grant for another large future photographic collection to go into the public hands because of the mismanagement of this one. Clearly, I mean, the timescale of museums is a hundred year timescale. And here we have decisions being made and unmade in a dozen years or so There's a lack of forward thinking there in museum terms, which is very much more to do with politics and very much less to do with the national holdings in photography.
1: Compensation infers loss. So what has ultimately been lost at the museum in Bradford? In the most immediate sense, it's lost a world-ranking collection that could form the core of any serious photography museum. It's lost a tapestry of priceless historical swatches, an archive of light, frozen in time and drawn back to the present as testament and record. But the loss of the RPS collection also signals a much greater loss. What was left of Bradford's treasured photography museum is now gone. The International Herald Tribune once called it the world's most popular institution devoted to photography such an institution no longer exists.
6: I think the Bradford Museum was in a terrible hurry. The Science Museum has agreed to implement a STEM agenda. It's moving lock, stock and barrel away from anything that looks or smells like art and is moving to this notion that you can concentrate a whole museum on the curricular agenda of this new American import in educational thinking. Given the time constraints that there were, given that the um, uh, the, Ministry of, the Ministry of Culture has simply taken no responsibility for those decisions at all. The Ministry of Culture has simply said there will be a cut of X percent. I think the figure is 30 percent in the Bradford Museum's funding. Uh, Meet it from where you can. I don't think there's been very much choice in the thing. I think that the, the uh, trustees of the museum no doubt could say that they would have rather the world span in a different direction. But they haven't resisted very hard in finding ways to counter the pressure that's been put on them by their budget masters. And I think it's a sadness to me that budget alone seems to have been the, the, the driving force, not only for the decision, but for the speed of the decision, and therefore, as I say, for some of the clumsy ways in which it was implemented, which seem to be utterly avoidable with a better planned and longer-term policy.
1: A policy fix is probably needed and not just an internal policy fix at SMG. We need a national policy for fairer acquisitions and a more even spread of cultural assets across the country. The need for such a policy is especially pressing at the Bradford Museum, where a further 13 photography collections have now been earmarked for removal. These include the Fox Talbot Museum collection, the Tony Ray Jones archive, Julia Margaret Cameron's famous Herschel album, and the National Media Museum Collections, which have been acquired directly from photographers since the museum opened in 1983. These are all collections of national significance, and their fate now hangs in the balance. But their fate would not be so precariously hung if we had a fair and coherent policy on collections transfers in place, one that could guarantee some core redistributive principles. As it stands, we don't have a policy like this. As it stands, something like the RPS transfer can happen without fair compensation or clear accountability.
6: We have had a a relatively long history of it being the public wish expressed in policy to decentralise and to provincialise cultural holdings. This is a direct overturning of that policy without the policy having been overturned. And at that level, if at no other, it seems a very strange way to arrive at a decision.
1: Since 2013, all of the changes at the Bradford Museum, including the RPS transfer, have come from a set of difficult choices, a set of curatorial decisions tempered by the zero-sum, top-down economics of austerity. These decisions have been centrally directed in an opaque manner, and these decisions ultimately exacerbate the existing imbalances we experience in our national cultural life. These decisions cannot be reversed, but questions will remain. Was the museum's only route to survival a wholesale change of remit? Will this stem agenda actually sustain the museum going forward? And at a time when photography has never been so universally popular, at a time when upwards of a billion photographs are shared around the world every day, why didn't SMG instead choose to consolidate the Bradford Museum around one of the world's greatest archives of photography?
8: We're always on the outside, on the
1: outside,
8: always looking in. We're Drawn
1: by Light was a non-profit production for Circadence. It was written and produced by me, Callum Barton. Editorial help from Claudia Cannon, Sarah Levey, and William Goody. Sincere thanks to everyone I interviewed for this project. Particular thanks go to Joe Booth, Michael Turwey, and Colin Ford. A huge thanks also to Michael Pritchard, Director General of the Royal Photographic Society, Ray Sasan President of the Bradford Photographic Society, Councillor Simon Cook of Bradford Council, Joe Slack at Red Eye, Anne McNeil, Director of Impressions Gallery, Sue Grayson Ford, and Eamon McCabe. All music was used with the kind permission of Moby Gratis. The select committee audio from episode one was used with kind permission from the Parliamentary Recordings Unit. Excerpts of the protest against the Bradford Museum's closure in 2013 were used with the kind permission of filmmaker Simon Lawson. You can check out the Rebalancing Our Cultural Capital report at gpsculture.co.uk forward slash R-O-C-C. For the
8: sun when it shines Finds us both in the shade We're always on the ebb tide But we'll keep on trying till we win For we know someday we're going to be on the inside Instead of the outside Always looking in we In. We never know our fortunes are made. Oh, the sun when it shines finds us both in the shade. We're always on the uptide, but we'll keep on trying till.